This is pediatric traumatic brain injury. When we look briefly at the epidemiology, we know that more than 640,000 pediatric emergency room visits for children under the age of 15 involve traumatic brain injury. We know that it's the leading cause of death and disability among children. Males are three times more likely to die from traumatic brain injury compared to females. Um, it is the major cause of hospitalizations among children. And we also know that uh, most children suffer the mild classification of TBI, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on. Again, I put this slide in here for the Glasgow Coma Scale. It is very important for you to understand and how to assess this and how to document it, because this is crucial when you're taking care of someone with traumatic brain injury, especially in the beginning stages to get your baseline, and then later on if things start to change to make sure that you're observing the appropriate changes. Now, with traumatic brain injury, there's actually two injury events that occur, your primary and then your secondary. Your primary injury results from the actual injury. So if someone gets hit in the head or they fall or they're in a car accident, there's an actual insult to the brain. Then that insult causes an increase in volume where you get edema, you can have bleeding, there's also a loss of autoregulation. So now the brain isn't able to control the cerebral blood flow as it normally does. There's an increase in cerebral spinal fluid production. And then when you have hypercapnia and hypoxia, you can then have changes um, that can cause an increase in intracranial pressure. And then ultimately, if these events aren't challenged or treated, then you can develop herniation and further brain swelling. Your secondary injury comes in when there's, there's biochemical changes within the brain cells itself, as well as physiological changes. So some of your primary injuries that you're going to see are intracranial contusions, epidural and subdural hematomas, subarachnoid bleeds. And you can also have what's known as DAI or diffuse axonal injury. And this is caused by your your coup and contra-coup injuries or your acceleration, deceleration injuries. And here you're having a shearing trauma within the parenchyma of the brain, especially within the gray and white matter. Your secondary injury comes into play, and this is a key feature where there's a massive influx of calcium into the neurons, which is triggered by a release of this excitotoxic neurotransmitters, particularly glut uh, glutamate during the primary insult. The calcium influx initiates a, a different cascade that, that then can result into cell necrosis or apoptosis. The excitotoxicity process is in which the glutamate and other essential or excitatory amino acids cause neuronal death. The glutamate is an abundant neurotransmitter. Uh, when we are exposed to toxic levels, it can cause neuronal death. You can also have the shearing of axons, and again, you can have that shearing force at, this, at the axonal level, which then causes swelling, accumulation of proteins and calcium, and ultimately this, ultimately this leads to um, cell death. Now, to take a closer look at these cerebral injuries, um, we'll take, we'll take a, a look at both the epidural, subdural hematomas, subarachnoid hemorrhages, your DAI, and herniation. So your epidural hematoma is where you're having a fluid collection between the skull, 
bone and the dura itself. It's typically caused by the an injury to the middle meningeal artery. And these are typically a rapid onset type of symptomology for these patients. So there's an initial injury. And oftentimes these patients may have a normal or relatively high Glasgow coma score. And then as they're being transported to the hospital or while they're presenting in the emergency room, then they're starting to see changes in their mental status. They're seeing changes in their GCS. And that will prompt the team to get faster imaging. And oftentimes it's a it's an epidural bleed. Your subdural bleeds are venous bleeds, and they tend to take a lot longer for us to see symptoms in these patients. Um, sometimes we can see them on imaging when they first come in. But I remember taking care of a young man many, many years ago who had an injury a month prior to being admitted to the ICU. And his presentation was so slow because it was such a gradual bleed that he didn't get symptoms showing up for like three weeks after the injury. Um, so never discount somebody and always make sure that when you have someone with traumatic brain injury, that there's some type of follow-up involved so that we can make sure that we follow up on these patients. With these CT images you're seeing here, there is an actual, um, the on your CT scan, blood outside of its normal pattern will show up as a whitish collection of fluid, as you see here along the side of the skull. Um, you can also see here on this image that the, down the center, you should have some ventricles. You only see one set of ventricles and everything's being pushed over to the, to the left side. So in this case, this patient is experiencing either early signs or actual herniation at this point, and you're getting a shift across the midline. For your epidural bleeds here, you could see that there's this whitish um, hue over the gray matter as well, which could be indicative of an epidural bleed. For your subarachnoid hemorrhages, you have the blood that actually accumulates within the fissures of the parenchyma of the brain. And as you could see in this cartoon image here to the, to the right of the screen, um, you definitely have your arachnoid space, which is this grayish space here, which then enfolds or is, is part of these um, folds within the brain itself. And then this image here shows a very good depiction of how blood accumulates in this spot. And then it highlights itself here on the CT image. Your diffuse axonal injury will be highlighted white spots of bleeding, you know, in the brain itself or like in the parenchyma of the brain. It's also from the shearing injury from the, um, from the primary injury itself. You will start to see changes in your, um, intracranial pressure within 24 to 72 hours. And this is caused by several layers of edema. The cytotoxic edema, the cells um, are experiencing irreversibly, they're having an irreversible injury. There's intracellular swelling. With the vasogenic, there's an increase in this capillary permeability. And then you're starting to see dysfunction within the cells. And then you have this interstitial edema, which is now an increase in the periventricular white matter. Um, and it also causes an increase in cerebral spinal fluid hydro hydrostatic pressure. Following the initial event with the hyperperfusion, some children will experience this increase in cerebral blood flow. And that's due to the loss of autoregulation 
that's also compounded with this excessive production of cerebral spinal fluid and decreased absorption. So when monitoring these patients, and if, especially if you have an ICP monitor in place, and if you don't, if you have a CVP in place, you could still measure your cerebral perfusion pressure, look, you know, subtracting your ICP from the mean arterial pressure. And our, in our infants, we generally want to keep their cerebral perfusion pressure above 40, um, typically between 40 and 50. Our younger children, we want it between 50 and 60, and our bigger kids, our adolescents and our adults, we'd like to have it above 60. And this is just to ensure that we're getting good blood flow to the brain and that we're not um, under-perfusing them while we're treating them. Again, this is another diagram of the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine. Again, there's your three components that's inside the box. That's your brain, your cerebral spinal fluid, and blood. The blood we can control by vasoconstricting the vessels and reducing their size within that box. And with cerebral spinal fluid, we can pull that off with an ICP monitor or some type of drain. When we look at the presentation, we classify our traumatic brain injury as mild, moderate, and severe. And here you have your Glasgow Coma scores to match each your mild, which is most of your concussive type of injuries, typically have a GCF between 13 and 15. Your moderate are going to have a GCS somewhere between 9 and 12, and then your severe are going to be less than 8. And always remember, anyone that has an, a GCS less than 8, you have to protect their airway and you would intubate them. Your clinical symptoms, um, you're going to see headache, irritability, vomiting, loss of consciousness, and seizure. And I've put here um, the predictability percentages for each of those symptoms. If we have someone with a GCS that's less than eight and we have to intubate them, we want to be very careful and we use this rapid sequence, rapid sequence intubation algorithm. This is pulled directly from the pack book. And here you're going to go ahead and pre-oxygenate the patient. You want to pre-medicate them um, to make sure that they're not going to have any massive swings in the heart rate. So for your children that are under the age of five, they'll go ahead and give them a, a dose of atropine to make sure that we're supporting their heart rate. We give them the lidocaine to kind of control um, changes or drops. Uh, we, we give them the lidocaine to help prevent any excitability from the noxious stimulation from the intubation itself. Of course, the fentanyl is going to be provided for pain control or analgesia. And then we're going to sedate them. If they have a good blood pressure, we can give them uh, propofol or thiopenthol. Um, and if they're hypotensive, we'll probably opt to use a medication called etomidate. And etomidate's a great drug because it doesn't affect cardiac conduction, contractility, and it doesn't, it doesn't um, have an impact on your blood pressure. You definitely want to make sure that you apply cricoid pressure, and that's just to give you better visualization of the cords when you're intubating the patient. Um, and then we want to make sure that we're going to paralyze them and, and give them uh, a good paralytic. And then, of course, the intubation part is the last portion of this uh, sequence. This algorithm here, I pulled from the most recent guidelines that everyone's using for their evidence-based protocols on treating traumatic brain injury. Um, the, the gist of it here is if a child comes in with severe TBI, that's a Glasgow less than eight, we're going to 
consult neurosurgery immediately. They'll be part of the, the, the trauma team, and they'll actually make a decision whether they're just going to put in an ICP monitor or they're going to go straight for a craniectomy. And that will depend on the severity of the injury. Of course, your images are going to play a, a huge role in that to see if there's any signs of early herniation or actual signs of impending herniation. We're also going to base a lot of this information, you know, through their CVP, lab values, making sure, you know, if their ICPs, when they first put them in, are above 20 or 25, they may go straight to the operating room. But we're definitely going to do measures to try to bring that ICP down um, so we can give them mannitol um, or hypertonic saline. Mannitol is probably uh, preferred in the trauma room because it's, you know, available in bags. It's easy to be easy to draw up and give. Um, whereas hypertonic saline can take a little, sometimes a little while for people to get prepared and, and start giving. Um, always remember that when you give mannitol, it needs to be filtered. And then of course, we're going to do things to try to maintain, um, to, to keep the ICP down. So we'll give them analgesia, analgesia and sedation, like I talked about in the previous modules. We can maintain their C, their PACO2 once they're intubated. Um, around 35, definitely don't want it to go up above 40. You want it on the lower end of the normal range. We want to keep them normal thermic. I know in years past, we've had protocols and guidelines where there was recommendations for cooling. Um, we don't typically cool as much for these patients anymore. Um, we're going to make sure that we have um, IV access as well as we're giving them good volume status. So we'll be monitoring their CVPs, making sure that they're not fluid overloaded and they're not dry. We're going to try to maintain that hemoglobin right around above, at least greater than seven. So we don't want to start treating them with a bunch of blood products, but we definitely don't want them to drop. And in my experience, when they say a minimum hemoglobin of seven, that means if they're symptomatic at eight or nine, we're going to treat them with blood. But if they're, if we're, if they're tolerating their therapies, um, and they have a lower hemoglobin, as long as they're not symptomatic from it. So they're not hypotensive, they're not tachycardic, those kind of things. And again, we want to keep the head of the bed and uh, at, at least at a 30 degree angle, we want to keep the head and neck midline. And then we can consider um, continuous EEG monitoring. We may go ahead and prophylactically start giving them medications to prevent seizures. Um, and then you want to begin your, your, your nutrition uh, protocols and making sure you keep them normal glycemic. Um, and we're going to try to maintain that CPP, you know, the minimum on the screen here, we're talking about infants, a minimum of 40, but we definitely want to keep it within range for the child's age. Again, we want to confirm that, that intravascular volume and that status. If we have to put them on pressors, we can do that. And we can also give them, um, hypertonic saline for increased ICPs. And then if we need to treat the ICPs, of course, once we put that monitor in, we can drain off fluid if they, if they give us a ventricular um, access, um, keep them normothermic, keep that analgesia and that sedation going, and keep them neuromuscular blocks so that they're not you know, getting excited or moving around and causing that ICP to increase. So again, I think this is a very good pathway. Most institutions have adopted this pathway or have some form that looks very similar to this. So I would recommend, you know, at your institutions when you're working in ICUs or if you come across a patient with the TBI that you're treating to look at your institutional policies and make sure that they're using guidelines that are, that are current and up to date.
Again here, I, I talk about treating that increased intracranial pressure, and I talk about the least invasive and most invasive. Of course, your least invasive is going to be um, you know, keeping the, the head of the bed up at 30 degree angle, keeping the neck midline. You want to, if you, when you start moving toward the invasive things, we're looking at intubating them, sedation, your hyperosmal therapy, ventricular drain, CSFs. That's all part of the protocol. But again, I want you to kind of just stay familiar with those um, treatments. Hyperosmolar therapy, you know, we have two options. We have 3% saline or your hypertonic saline and your mannitol. With 3% saline, we typically give boluses of 3 to 5 cc's per kilo. Um, we want to start our infusion somewhere between 0.1 to 1 cc per kilo. And we can actually push that serum osmolarity up to about 360 as needed. And remember, you need to go back to how to calculate your osmolarity. Um, it's important with these patients that you understand where you are with therapy. Um, so that's another thing to consider. Your mannitol, our boluses are somewhere between uh, 0.25 to 1 gram per kilo. And then here we're going to um, try to keep our serum osmolarity um, at around 320 or less. We don't want it much higher than that. that that's because mannitol is a, is a is a osmotic diuretic. It's basically a large sugar molecule, and we don't want to cause other injury, um, say, to the kidneys and things like that. Here we have a nice little cartoon image of the different ways we can transduce or assess our ICP. Now, for me, when I have someone that has a very uh, uh, up and down type of ICP number, like say they're you know they're pushing up in the 20s, sometimes in the 30s. You know, having that ventriculostomy is crucial because you are able to pull off cerebral spinal fluid. Um, so you're able to not only monitor but you can also do interventions with it. And then, of course, if you're concerned about infection or you're concerned about cell counts, you can pull those off and send those to the lab. Whereas your other types of monitors, they can give you an ICP number, but they don't necessarily give you the option to treat with that device. So they can put in fiber optic catheters, epidural transducers, subdural catheters, or subdural bolts. I've seen the majority of these various times in my career and my favorite to use is this ventriculostomy because, again, you can monitor and treat at the same time. And then to wrap things up, you know, I, I want you to remember, don't forget the other things that go on with the patient. You want to make sure that you put them on some form of a stress ulcer prophylaxis. You may need to start antibiotics, especially if the injuries were dirty wounds. You know, if this was this kid ejected from a car and thrown into a ravine of like dirty water. Um, you want to make sure that you're giving them some coverage, at least up front, until you can rule out that there's no infection or you've been able to identify an organism and then you can go ahead and treat with the appropriate antibiotics. Again, you want to use isotonic IV solutions. You want to consider repeating films, especially if you have a known, known bleed. So you may have to go back frequently to CT scan or MRI to evaluate the evolution of these bleeds. Um, or you may have to do more detailed exams on these patients to make sure if there is any changes and then you're going to be off for another series of films. And then lastly, do not forget about ophthalmology, um, especially with these acceleration, deceleration type injuries where they can actually hit their head on something. You can have 
small hemorrhages or issues with their um, with the eyes. And the other thing to remember too is if someone does an ophthalmology exam, most of the time they're going to dilate their pupils, and you want to let the team know when those pupils are dilated. Because I can tell you, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a room and a nurse is freaked out to do her pupillary exam and thinking the patient's herniating and the ophthalmologist just left their room and dilated their pupils to do a good in-depth uh, pupillary or um, retinal exam. Um, and that's it for me for this, for this uh, talk. Um, if you have any questions or concerns, I'm always available to you. Have a good one.